back to the Rig Podcast. We have an exciting announcement. Rigged host Jamie Folk has published his book named, strangely, Rigged, Annie Dukin, Sonia Farrakh, and the Drug War in the Nation's Most Liberal Police State. Similar to the podcast, the book is chock full of evidence demonstrating just how far the Massachusetts state government has gone to cover up what happened at the Hinton and Amherst labs. Jamie has been working on this book for eight years and uncovered over 70,000 official pieces of documentation to reveal the lies and corruption of the state. If you're interested in this case, please check out the book, available on Amazon and all other major book retailers. Today's episode of the Rig Podcast sees the return of Luke Ryan to discuss the only federal investigation of a police department in the Trump era. The facts laid out in this episode are quite shocking, so listener discretion is definitely advised. Please enjoy this episode of Rigged, and as always, like, subscribe, and tell your friends. Hello, and welcome back uh, to Rigged. Uh, today we are going to go over... Uh, federal investigation into the Springfield Police Department. Uh, that's what the bulk of the episode is going to cover. Uh, we have Luke Ryan back, which is wonderful. And um, and Chris and Ilias are here. Uh, but first, we wanted to do just a, a brief thing on the Rittenhouse verdict that just came out uh, this past week. Chris, if you wanted to uh, kind of share your thoughts about that first. Sure. I had sort of four separate things that I thought were worthy of talking about first. Uh, the prosecutor did a number of things that were very sketchy and I think was rightly admonished uh, at least a couple of times. Uh, then on the flip side, the judge made some decisions that I think showed uh, where his bias was. Uh, and then uh, third, uh, there were some things that I uh, heard in the trial that I had never heard before, um, which sort of changed how I viewed um, the strength of the defendant's legal claim and that's sort of a comment that maybe the media didn't do as good of a job as it should have in, um, you know, focusing or, or getting information out about certain details. And then uh, finally, you know, people have all sorts of opinions, but based on what I heard, you know, yesterday on the news from pundits, I feel like, uh, you know, some people, at least some people who are dissatisfied with the outcome, maybe conflating a couple of issues or focusing on legally irrelevant issues. So um, getting to the first point, um, the prosecutor really, I thought, crossed the line in uh, commenting on the defendant's silence uh, a number of times. And, you know, that's longstanding law. You cannot do that. So, um, you know, uh, when Rittenhouse started testifying, um, he was trying to make the point that, uh, you know, the defendant had the opportunity to um, see the witnesses testifying and, and tailor his uh, his own testimony, which I guess is a fair point. But you can't be like, you know, why didn't you tell the police about that or um, anything of that nature? Because it violates the defendant's right to silence. So I don't know if anyone else wants to talk about that particular point. Well, I'll let Luke uh, actually answer it, but I will just say that in parallel, there's the uh, trial of the the three men who were responsible for killing uh, Ahmad Arbery. And it, in contrast, they actually spoke to police. And uh, uh, I think because they, at the time, believed that they were in very little uh, criminal uh, jeopardy, and so their statements have been used in cross-examination for things they said and didn't say. 
But here, what you're talking about is the fact that he didn't say anything. Uh, and, and, and therefore, uh, the, 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 the fact that he may have contrived testimony later, um, th- there's not much a prosecutor can do because you can't use the fact he didn't volunteer something uh, before because he has the right not to. So I think it's an interesting uh, uh, situation how these cases play out when people actually follow their legal rights. And I'm sure we all would advise our clients don't say anything for this very reason. But uh, I, I think, Luke, uh, your your view on that would be um, uh, interesting. Yeah, it, it's consistent with both of yours. I mean, that's... Um, that the prosecutor uh, earned the admonishment he received for doing that. Uh, you, you just can't comment on a person's um, invocation of their fifth amendment. Right. It, it is, uh, um, you know, it's the case at large. It's easy to look at Kyle Rittenhouse and think about, you know, it'd be difficult to create a more unsympathetic uh, criminal defendant in a lot of ways. Um but um, that principle is, is one that I think is you, you, as if you care about the rights of the accused, uh, it, it, that's one that you just have to, um, in principle, acknowledge exists and that um, the state really can't uh, seek to exploit to uh, suggest that there's any you know, consciousness of guilt in not talking to the police when uh, you're taken into custody and, and given Miranda warnings that advise you that you have that very right. Yes. So um, I totally agree. And moving on, the other thing I uh, noted, you know, on the flip side, uh, the judge uh, made some decisions that I really think showed where his bias was uh, in favor of defense. And you usually never see that, but uh, here in particular, I guess there was a motion in women a, where the prosecution was trying to introduce, or perhaps the defense was trying to keep out a statement that Rittenhouse made. Uh, and I tried to find the exact quote before we started this. I couldn't find it, but I heard it, um, you know, over the course of the week during the media coverage. Apparently he said something like, gosh, I wish I had my AR-15 with me so I could shoot these. And I don't know if it said protesters, looters, or rioters, but I think it was probably looters or rioters, or if someone can find the exact quote, that would be helpful. But uh, the, the legal issue here is um, you can't get into propensity evidence. And so, uh, you know, certain statements that the um, or facts about the defendant that the prosecution will try and introduce at trial, they can't because there's legal principle. You know, the jury has to base their decision on the evidence in front of them about the particular matter not uh, because the person is believed to be a, a bad person. So, for instance, uh, you know, you can't have a prosecutor say, you know, hey, you cheated on your ex-wife 10 years ago. That means you're a liar because it just is totally irrelevant to the case. However, there's exceptions to that where um, a, a statement or something the defendant does shows motive, intent, or planning. So an example we just discussed before starting our recording, if you have a, a student at a high school tell his friend, you know, gosh, I would wish I had a bomb so I could blow up the school, and then like a week and a half later, he builds a bomb and blows up the school, you know, that's clearly relevant to the case. And, it, you know, the prosecution has a right to introduce that because it shows motive, intent, and planning. Um, however, you know, 
when the judge, uh, from what I heard, was considering this, he said he didn't see the relevance of uh, the statement that Rittenhouse made at all, which I thought, uh, you know, I would certainly want to keep that out if he was my client, but I don't think in 99% uh, of the time, you know, I, I'd ever be able to accomplish that. And I think that the fact that the judge ruled that way on that particular motion shows that he was pretty biased. Um, so I don't know if anyone else has a different opinion, but I, I thought that to be the case. Well, I, I have the quote, uh, which <laughs> is, bro, I wish I had my effing AR. I'd start shooting rounds at them. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, you know, one problem is that there may be uh, you know, the rules of evidence sort of involve weighing a lot of considerations. And so one, one problem is it's not necessarily clear maybe what the exact context is. I mean, we all can infer, I think, the context and the motivation there. But, you know, I'm sure the judge can cover himself with a, you know, well, that's prejudicial or, or something like that. But I would say more directly to bias was the fact that the judge didn't allow prosecutors to refer to the victims as victims, that they had to be referred to as looters or rioters, which is like, you might as well just fill out the verdict slip for the jury if you're going to call the, the dead victims looters and rioters. Because, I mean, that those terms are, you know, the... Um, part of the, 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 the dueling narratives in this country, right? Uh, and, and, and when you refer to somebody as a looter or a rioter, you're, you're sort of telling people what side of that battle you're on. Um, and, and so I think, for, and also I think the judge at some point had his phone ring, which is, I, I, I've never seen that in court that a judge's phone audibly rings. And it was um, a rendition of, I, I'm not sure if it was God Bless America, but like a, the, the one that was the standard at sort of Trump political rallies. So there was sort of this, um, and I think that was intentional. You know, that's like when someone's, you know, at a work uh, meeting and they accidentally have a picture of themselves at the beach, you know, with no shirt on, showing off their muscles and like, oh, how'd that get in there? Um, oh, speaking of which, my phone rings. Um, but uh, so that's, I think that that- Your ring isn't the chicken dance, dude. I thought for sure it would be the chicken dance. So I, I think for a judge to do that was like, there were there was there was a lot of, signaling going on from the judge. Uh, and so, you know, without commenting on that one ruling, other than I would say that ruling shows to me that my belief of what Rittenhouse was doing is exactly what Rittenhouse was doing, which is he was there to be in a situation where his life could be plausibly threatened. And then he could use his AR-15 um, which seems like something he actually wanted to happen. And, and I don't think he was actually crying. Um, and, and, uh, and I also think that his lie was that he was there with his little medic pack. And, but he didn't seem to use his little medic pack on the people he just put on their back with a, a massive hole in their body. So um, I think, uh, again, you see this case probably the way you wanted to see the case. And so I'm going to admit I have my own biases, but, but I think, um, I think the judge's role in this case was, um, uh, I, I guess, uh, one could look at that, uh, pretty closely as something that, uh, uh, needs to be examined. The one thing I would add to what you just said, uh, the entirety is, uh, with regard to the ruling on the particular motion that the 
Commonwealth or the uh, prosecution be prohibited uh, from using the term victim. That's actually standard, and we file it in every case because it can it sort of uh, subconsciously, when the jury hears that, uh, it's going to build the narrative that that is in fact in the case, and so it sort of colors what what all the rest of the testimony is like. Right, but they weren't. If you if that's the case, then I don't think they just default to looters and rioters, right? right. I mean, they were they were people. Right. They were people who were shot. Um, and you can you can I suppose, you know, their name, you can refer to them by name. Um, and uh, and by the way, they weren't. I mean, th- th- I don't believe there was an accusation that those that any of the three were actually looting. Right. I think there were they were on the streets and there was a lot of passion swirling around. But I don't one of them, none of them had like a color TV. Right. Or like uh, uh, that they had just taken out of the front window of a store. So anyway, um, I, 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 that's why I think your views, uh, Luke and Chris, are more pertinent because you guys live in the, these trenches and you, I think, understand where the rulings are fair and where the protection of defendants uh, uh, are, 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 are necessary. Um, and I think everybody else sort of has their knee jerk uh, knee jerk reactions. But um you know, that's yeah, why I say I, mean, I don't think this case moves the needle for anyone. I, I I have to confess that I did not, you know, watch uh, much of this trial at all. Um, I, I watched the New York Times 26 minute <laughs> summary of the video evidence before the trial got started, which I thought um, did a pretty good job of, um, you know, laying out what was going to be at the heart of it. But uh you know, I, I think an, an issue like the the propensity uh, one that you raised, Chris, I mean, in order for me to really have a strong opinion about whether or not uh, that was the right ruling or not, I think I'd want to read the briefs. I'd want to, you know, I'd be up to speed on what Wisconsin law uh, has held in that. And I think it's difficult from this vantage point to, I, I certainly agree that I think in, in Massachusetts, if this was being tried and it was a typical defendant, I think... It, uh, and, uh, you know, there, there would be a, a, a strong assumption that that evidence would be coming in. I, I also think it's important that once the judge made that ruling and to keep it out, um, the prosecutor, um, that's that's the law of the case. And I think the prosecutor it, it, it attempted to kind of get around that in a way that, again, like as an advocate, uh, you can look at that and say, all right, the judge may have screwed up, but you can't just ignore that screw up because the other side is kind of plotting its advocacy based on that ruling. You have to be able to kind of rely on that. So I, I from the limited parts that I did catch, I thought the prosecutor um, did some things that, that really um, hurt his case and earned him uh, the rebukes he got from a judge who clearly had a agenda, who uh, down to the little things like letting the defendant choose the alternates, um, which according to the press accounts I read, that doesn't happen in Wisconsin, certainly doesn't happen in Massachusetts. There seemed to be this uh, sense on the part of the judge that, uh, you know, he was just extending these these courtesies to uh, the defendant throughout that just were not the norm at all for how criminal trials get conducted. I think the main reason I I ultimately chose not to engage with this case is because it really felt like 
the issues that were going to be decided were not the ones that I thought were really where the focus should be. I mean, the fact that the police were handing out water to Rittenhouse and these other armed guys, thanking them for being there when they were violating the same curfew that everybody else was, uh, just, you know, that's just not a part of this trial, but it, it, it laid the ground for, for what happened. I think it was in, in just an incredible display of biased law enforcement out on the street that he could shoot multiple people walk down the street as people are screaming at him and just watch the police drive on by. It felt almost like a key and peel skit about the way that, um, you know, this way in which law enforcement, uh, you know, is just suffers from either explicit or implicit bias. And, and those just weren't a part of this criminal trial, which, you know, as much as I said at the outset, you couldn't really construct a less sympathetic defendant, but, um, you know, the, the, the principles at play in these cases are important to uphold in every single case. Uh, and I'm not saying that they were or they weren't, but I, I, I'm reluctant to just uh, assume that this verdict was one that, uh, you know, to comment more, I, I think would be irresponsible. And, and last thing I said, just Ilya, you just said the um, uh, Trump uh, ringtone here. Uh, his comment on this case uh, that congratulating Rittenhouse for being found innocent, that is not what this verdict was. Anytime <laughs> there is a verdict of not guilty, it means that the government failed to establish its burden of proving beyond reasonable doubt an, an element of the defense or the, uh, the, the offense. And you can't infer anything beyond that. This is not a verdict saying that Rittenhouse is innocent. It, it really is what the box says that got checked. He was not guilty, according to the jury. And, and uh, it, it's not a rubber stamp of vindication or innocence in any way. It's crazy that uh, Dictator McCheese missed the nuance on that. He's usually like really down in that, down in the weeds of, you know. Anyway, all right. So we could go on and on, but um, I want to kind of shift. Uh, you know, we were talking about police corruption and well, not just corruption, but like just more of the agenda. And Luke painted the picture of Rittenhouse walking down with a gun while the cop cars are just whizzing by him and, you know, going towards someone else. And uh, the Springfield police um, were investigated by the justice department. That's what we wanted to talk about today. So um, I'm going to just read from the department of justice investigation at first uh, uh, just to kind of give an introduction to this, but before I begin, does anyone want to have uh, share some thoughts? Uh, you guys are obviously familiar with their investigation and uh, the findings. Do you guys want to share any thoughts on on that and what your maybe experiences, if you have any, with the Springfield Police have been? If you can, whatever you can share. Um, I'm happy to just kind of say at the outset that as you kind of get into the weeds of what this. Uh, investigation revealed, it's really important to just keep in mind the fact that uh, this was an investigation that began on the watch of Jess Sessions and was culminated uh, when Bill Barr was at the head of the Justice Department. And you really couldn't pick two guys that are more hostile to the notion of systemic problems in policing. This was the single pattern in practice um, finding during the entire four years, um, which is really, really remarkable that uh, 
the Justice Department didn't use this mechanism uh, in, in departments throughout the country. But what I think it speaks to is just how really, really bad this uh, Springfield Police Department is. They have earned the dubious distinction of being the only police department in the entire country during this four-year period to get saddled with this label of uh, that the, the DOJ put upon them. And, and for that reason, I think you really just have to listen to what you're about to talk to from these findings and, and, and recognize how remarkable they are. Right. It's uh, that's a great point. Um, d- just the fact that Springfield Mass was singled out for all, all the entire four years to be the only one investigated like this. And it's the narcot- narcotics department, which is what they kind of focused on. Um, Chris or Ilias, you what you guys want to say anything before we begin? Um, the only thing I'd say sort of in general, you sent around beforehand uh, a video uh, related to the interrogation of a minor. And I would just say, um, I don't know if we were going to go into that more specifically, but um, other states in reaction to police doing things like this have uh, been starting to uh, make some progress. I think Illinois, uh, if I remember correctly, a little while ago, uh, it's now by statute, the police cannot lie to uh, minors uh, when they're being interrogated, which I think is sort of phenomenal because it leads to a lot of miscarriages of justice. Anyway, go ahead. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, we, we'll, we'll get, I think we'll dissect that video in another episode and clip it up with audio clips. I didn't get a chance to, uh, go through it and and clip it up like I wanted to, but there's enough material that the report's 28 pages. I'll post it on our Twitter, uh, so people can kind of dive in and see, but I'm basically going to read directly from the report and, um, just so people are aware of, you know, what the justice department found and, also how these guys operate it's re- it's and for me like Ilya said at the beginning I'm the closest to a normal person on the you know not a lawyer not involved with the law in any way this is this, this is terrifying and not only that uh they it seems like that I don't want to bury the lead here but it seems like the narcotics department of the Springfield PD has a obsession with punching people in the face that's that's what I got from this is that they routinely punch people in the face when it's not needed, when uh, their own manuals on, on how to uh, engage with, you know, uh, suspects, et cetera, say that punching people in the face uh, puts an officer more at risk because you're kind of lunging, you're out of position. There's a number of reasons that they give to not do it. And yet, uh, they put themselves at risk, and also like the the people who they're punching, they put them at great risk. I, we, what reading this, it's remarkable that there wasn't a George Floyd type incident in Springfield um, with how this. Maybe there was, and it just didn't get the same kind of coverage. But anyways, I'll start. So on April thirteenth, twenty eighteen. The uh, U.S. Justice Department initiated an investigation of the Springfield Police Department's Narcotics Bureau pursuant to the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994. The Narcotics Bureau is a small unit of Springfield Police plainclothes officers tasked with enforcing drug laws. Following a thorough investigation, there is a reasonable cause to believe that Narcotics Bureau officers engage in a pattern or practice of excessive force in violation of the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution. 
So a real um, light intro there that the Springfield PD are violating the Constitution. Specifically, our investigation identified ev evidence that Narcotics Bureau officers repeatedly punched individuals in the face unnecessarily. I mean, and in part because they escalate encounters with civilians too quickly and resort to unreasonable takedown maneuvers that, like head strikes, could reasonably be expected to cause head injuries. This pattern or practice of excessive force is directly attributed to systemic deficiencies in policies, accountability systems, and training. For example, unlike most other police departments, Springfield PD uh, policies do not require officers to report hands-on uses of force such as punches and kicks. This practice enables Narcotics Bureau officers to routinely avoid reporting any use of hands-on force or to submit vague and misleading reports documenting their use of force. That right there is so dangerous. And something tells me that that doesn't show up in a trial. When, when these people are put on trial, the fact that they fudge reports and don't fill them out correctly probably couldn't be used as evidence against their uh, bias in the case. We also found examples where Narcotics Bureau officers falsified reports to disguise or hide the use of force. Supervisors fail to effectively review uses of force that Narcotics Bureau officers do report. Deficiencies within SPD's broader system of accountability exacerbate these issues. For example, although SPD uh, policy requires that senior command staff refer to SPD's internal investigations unit any questionable force incidents resulting in injury. From 2013 to 2018, command staff did not make any referrals in cases involving the, the Narcotics Bureau. Indeed, not a single such referral was made throughout the, the entire department. Further, while IIU was investigating some excessive force complaints made by members of the public, its investigations lack critical content needed to determine if an allegation should be substantiated. This has resulted in zero sustained findings of excessive force against any Narcotics Bureau officer in the last six years. <sighs> That's a lot. Um, it, that just, I mean, so they're false... According to this report, they're falsifying reports. They're using excessive force and just everyone's, you know, maintaining that code of silence, even with internal affairs. Um, and when the public complains, they've got no, no traction because everyone just clams up, right? Yeah. And, and just to be clear, though, I mean, this is not confined to Springfield. Um, I represented somebody who had uh, this happen in Boston. Uh, New Year's Day, four officers in plain clothes in a car um, decide to uh, mess with somebody, uh, and then uh, I think ended up using one of them used uh, his radio as a quote uh, weapon of opportunity to hit my client in the head, and then um, I think they forgot to do a use of force report, or maybe they did it, but it was misfiled somewhere so they could never find it, and then they also forgot to do what's called a visible injury report. Um, and and uh, as my client was carted off to the hospital um, with a serious head injury. So I think uh, just for context, this is a problem, I think, uh, um, specific to narcotics units and out of control police units. Um, but I think to Chris's point, Springfield is so bad 
that it was sort of like an overflowing toilet in Jeff Sessions uh, or Bill Barr's office. And they're like, I guess we got to do something about it. Um, because to do nothing would have probably uh, um, uh, led to some uh, uh, problems for them. So this was probably a species of sort of self-preservation. than this was like, you know, some sort of crusade to clean up the police. But, um, but I think this is systematic. Uh, and, 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 and so the first thing for, I ask when someone says something is systematic is I say, why, right? Like when baseball pitchers put Vaseline on a baseball, if they do it once, they're going to do it a hundred times. And then the question is why? Oh, because it makes the ball move around and unhittable. Ah, so then we need to figure out why, you know, what's motivating to do that. So why are, why is there a pattern of punching people in the head? And, and I, I always laugh when this investigations type of investigation says, well, oh, it just happens, but we don't really ask the question why. And so I, I see this tying in to the lab scandal because, again, there's a, clearly a benefit to the police if they're going to do this systematically. And we need to understand that benefit and try to uh, uh, disable it. And I, I don't get a sense that we, ju we just created more bureaucracy by more forms and more layers of protection. And when, why don't we just get to the, the, the root of the problem? But so, but there's not a like for like um, benefit, right? There is a perceived benefit in that they're they're rough. You know, it's the same thing. It, it's to me, it, it springs from the idea of you know tough on crime. Um, this is uber tough on crime. You better not f with the Springfield, you know, PD narcotics unit. We'll bring you down. We'll, we'll you know kick the crap out of you, plant drugs on you, do whatever it takes to screw to screw you over. Tough guy attitude, you know, like um, and that's that's just what it seems like that these guys are perpetuating. Um, and I'll I'll read this. Does anyone want to follow up with hey, what do you think potential? Motive? I have one point on. It's not really a motive. So there's systemic issues such as police being allowed to lie to people all the time, which I think creates an atmosphere where they think they can get away with anything. But specifically about this unit, if you go down to footnote 23, there is a complaint that narcotics bureau officers were drinking alcohol on duty and then internal affairs failed to review people. But them being drunk all day might be right. They're punching so many people in the face. Right. Right. And... <laughs> They're getting OT to get wasted on the job. And then, oh, by the way, let's go out and deal with the general public. That's a good idea. Uh, I, I have a, can I throw out another theory? Because this ties into a, a, the earlier Springfield issue, which was involved uh, a, a detective who was actually stealing money from the evidence room. And I would guess, I don't, I don't know if they have statistics on it, but I would guess that 90% of the money that he stole um, was drug seizure money. Right. So if you happen to be uh, in a certain neighborhood at a certain time of day and maybe you have a certain complexion uh, and you have a ca uh, envelope of cash and maybe that's your tips from working at a restaurant. Uh, but it doesn't matter if there's a smell of whatever in the car or your eyes look glassy or something. Probable cause uh, leads to that envelope uh, being transferred to the police officer and then in theory transferred to a safe. Um, and if somebody has their eyes on that money they're going to be pretty um, uh, maybe uh, uh, emotional about every transaction working out the way they want. So I think that there's this uh, uh, need uh, to ingest a lot of money into the system. 
And there's a lot of uh, passion surrounding that. And so I think, um, and, and I have anecdotes we can get into about things that passionate uh, uh, members of the uh, of a public service will do if there's money on the line. Uh, and I'm, uh, I'm talking about like uh, arson rings and uh, even a, uh, someone, I think, attempted to burn down the uh, a, a courthouse. Uh, but that's, I just read that this morning. But anyway, the point is, I think there's a, we need to understand what this drug enforcement system is and then understand why the, the, the actors in it behave the way they do. Um, I, I think that that's a really excellent point. Um, I think that the, the war on drugs just, you know, everything and everyone that it touches, it just leaves this film of uh, injustice and grossness. Uh, I mean, what you're essentially you have these narcotics officers and they're different than patrol officers. They spend their day engaged in games of make-believe. They pretend that they're civilians. They pretend that they're buyers, they're dealers, and they lie and they, they, they hide places and they spy on people. And then they make these arrests and we suddenly expect them to just suddenly write down every single thing that happens and turn on a dime and become these paragons of truth. I think that's an unrealistic thing. I also think because you have people that are in these positions for years and years and the work that they do does not matter. They pull people off corners and then the next day there's somebody taking their place. Uh, there's this, I think, cynicism that permeates this profession of narcotics detective after, I would venture to guess, a period of months where they realize oh, wait a minute, I'm not making a difference. Um, and, and it breeds this kind of contempt for the whole enterprise. Um, I mean, a lot of these cases in Springfield are, are very familiar to me. Hutchins uh, is a civil suit that's referenced a couple times in the DOJ report that my partner and I litigated. Um, but I mean, what they the things that this department uh, did and, and to some extent still do really just would blow anybody's mind. I mean, they have a pattern in practice of whenever they make a, an arrest uh, where there's a motor vehicle involved, uh, this this unit would routinely just take the keys and drive the car around the city of Springfield because I've had people testify in the stand. They want to pull up to a, a location and they want to see who comes out. I mean, it's really use without authority. They are stealing cars for periods of time uh, that um, they just feel like they can do because uh, the people that they're targeting are uh, suspected drug addicts and drug dealers, and they're just so far down in our kind of, like, society has this view of the, their, the people that they're targeting that they feel like they can turn a punch to the head as part of just the rest process, like reading rights or taking a booking photo in it. And, and and I just don't think you can wage a war on drugs uh, without um, you know engaging in behavior that that resembles this if it in fact doesn't replicate it. Right, and it's been going on for forty years. Right, has there been improvement in you know the the lack of availability of drugs in this country? Has there been have there been less drugs? Have less do less people use drugs? Like. Those are the measuring sticks, and anyone who pays attention to this knows that, of course not. You know, that's a joke. And so, it, there's no success yet. The public, to Luke's point, 
the public is be, is seems to be behind this. They seem to be like either turn the other way or view the people as um, you know inhuman scum who are drug addicts and engaged in you know certain behaviors. So they deserve everything that they get coming to them, uh, including you know repeatedly being punched in the head. And we'll see. Just let me get through this, and we'll we'll keep commenting here though. So against. This backdrop, the Narcotics Bureau officers engaged in uses of excessive force without accountability. For example, in October 2018, the United States indicted a veteran Narcotics Bureau sergeant for color of law violations related to his 2016 arrest of two juveniles. This is what Chris was talking about before, and we'll get into this video uh, in the next episode. The incident alleges that the sergeant kicked one of the youths in the head, spat on him, and said, welcome to the white man's world. Direct quote. Further, the sergeant allegedly threatened to, among other things, crush one of the youth's skulls and fucking get away with it. Quote. Another quote. Uh, fucking bring the dog back and let him fucking go after a youth killing, killing, uh, fucking killing one youth in the parking lot, charging a youth with murder and quote, fucking making it stick. And that he would quote, stick a fucking kilo of Coke in one of the youth's pockets and put him away for fucking 15 years. End of quote. The indictment also alleges that during in uh, during interrogation, the sergeant pointed, quote, pointed to the blood on his boot and told one of the youths that if he lied, the youth, the youth, quote, blood would be on the sergeant's boot next. The case is pending. So that is the highlight reel from that video that or the audio we're going to uh, show. But this is how they talk. Were they 15 years old? Is that how old they were? I, that sounds correct. I don't know specifically, but I, I think that was that might have been correct. Anyone out there who has a 15-year-old kid or a kid in general, this is how our paid public servants tasked with t- protecting and serving talk to 15-year-olds. And getting back to the point I was making earlier, uh, you know, it's a real problem with police. First of all, lying to everyone all the time, but you know, specifically in juveniles because they're what's the word, not impressionable, but um, they're particularly susceptible to um, this this type of thing. So some of these are direct physical threats. Others are uh, about lying and framing uh, youth stuff. Uh, you know, uh, there was another case in Massachusetts, the Notron case, where um, the uh, detectives lied to a juvenile mother who's... Um, uh, uh, kid had just her infant had just died from uh, sudden infant death syndrome, and they said they had a, if I remember correctly, a medical examiner go in and determine that the infant had been strangled. Um, so that resulted in that particularly particular defendant being stuck in jail pre-trial for I think years. So in response to activities like this throughout the country, I mean this. Springfield stuff is particularly egregious, but um, some states are making progress and it would be worthwhile if um, we were to pass a legislation in Massachusetts saying the police absolutely cannot be doing any of this because, you know, uh, the current case law as it stands is not enough uh, to prohibit them um, 
from engaging in this type of activity all the time. It's crazy. And uh, all right, so moreover, there is a reasonable cause to believe that officers use excessive force even more often than our investigation uncovered. Indeed, we we identified evidence that officers underreport force that should be documented even under the SPD's minimal reporting standards. In many of these cases, the evidence that is available suggests the force used may have caused serious injury and may have exceeded the level of force justified by the circumstance of the incident. This report is based on a comprehensive review of over 114,000 pages of SPDs, incident reports, investigative reports, policies, training materials, and other internal documents, interviews with the SPD officers and city officials, and interviews with community members. Our investigation was conducted, oh, by the way, they do get into this later, but the Narcotics Bureau, everyone refuses to uh, be on the record or be interviewed for this. So if you guys are ever investigated by the federal government, just say, oh, I'm, I'm not participating. The, uh, you know, the Springfield PD set that pre precedent. So I guess no one needs to participate in a federal investigation. No big deal. Uh, we appreciate the cooperation of professionalism, city officials, et cetera. So um, according to, so they start out in giving you a background of what Springfield is like as a city. According to uh, the 2020, 2010 census data, Springfield is the third largest city in Massachusetts with a population of over 153,000. Springfield's population is approximately 52% white, 36% Hispanic or Latino, 22% black and 2% Asian. The medium income in Springfield is $34,628, which is below the national average of just under 50,000. Approximately 27 percent of the population lives in poverty and 43 percent of latino re residents 27 percent of black residents and 19 percent of white residents living below the poverty line and then so springfield is governed by a mayor and city council the current mayor dominic serrano is a former springfield city councilman who has been mayor since 2007 and um, so the, those Springfield uh, City Council and Mayor, you know, are in charge of overseeing this to a degree. Recent events in the Narcotics Bureau and SPD. Several recent incidents have raised public concern regarding force and accountability issues within the SPD and within the Narcotics Bureau in particular. As discussed above, a Narcotics Bureau sergeant was indicted for threatening juveniles and a February 20, 2016 incident. In addition to the federal criminal charges filed against this officer, one of the youths filed a civil lawsuit alleging that the officer used excessive force against him. The lawsuit alleges officers beat the youth so severely that he received a fractured nose, two black eyes, and numerous head contusions and abrasions. The sergeant who threatened the youth initially received a 60-day suspension for the incident, but SPD suspended him without pay after he was criminally indicted by a federal grand jury in 2018. Oh, okay. So to get suspended without pay, you need to be indicted by a federal grand jury. That's what it takes, in case anyone was wondering. The, the civil lawsuit against the city and the criminal charges against the sergeant are both still pending. As a result of this controversy, local prosecutors have had trouble uh, successfully prosecuting drug crimes in Springfield in large part due to the fact that they have not been able to rely on the testimony from discredited narcotics bureau officers, <laughs> literally defeating their own purpose. 
like uh, their only purpose is to do the is to fix these crimes and they can't even try these people because they are such proven liars you know uh, just commenting on that point i think it's great that um different prosecutors are moving to have uh or issue you know do not call lists so these are individuals in police departments that can no longer testify so i think that's something that uh you know, progressive uh, prosecutors have realized is now necessary because the system it doesn't work and it ends up uh, leading to them losing cases. Right. Uh, while this investigation focused on the Narcotics Bureau, our conclusion about um, that, that Bureau are supported by the SPD's response to its officers' uses of excessive force generally. In one incident, six off-duty SPD officers not assigned to nar- the Narcotics Bureau fought with four men in a parking lot outside a bar in April 2015. The officers reportedly caused significant injuries to the men, including knocking one unconscious and fracturing his leg and skull, kicking and punching another while he lay on the ground covered, uh, covering his bleeding face and kicking a third man in the head repeatedly. The Massachusetts Attorney General's office has criminally charged has criminal charges pending against several of uh, then off-duty and then on-duty SPD officers. Charges include both assault and battery, and that some officers covered up the incident by providing false reporting. The alleged beating of civilians outside a bar and alleged willingness of officers to cover up fellow officers' misconduct demonstrate accountability lapses within the department. Now, is that the understatement of the year or what? <laughs> lapses. That's an, that is a very nice word for that. That's a great adjective. There, there is just lapses. With the charges pending, SPD reinstated to full service five officers in April 2020. There you go. Well, this gets into, you know, the issue um, uh, of sort of excessive force, right? I I think um, I I was asked by um, uh, a reporter, what's the difference between excessive force and police brutality? And I was sort of caught off guard by that question because I was like, um, they're the same thing. But I think the public believes that there's like sadism over here on one side. And then there's, you know, I got to do my job on the other side. And the reality is that excessive force just means you use more force than it, than there's some hazy line uh, that's, uh, that you're not supposed to cross. But what that means is you can use force. So this sort of ties into sort of the Kyle Rittenhouse thing, right? Apparently he was entitled to use force and it just happens that he has an AR-15 in his hand and that's the force he's going to use. Um, and, and maybe that force is proportional according to a jury. Um, but the police are entitled to use force. That's, their, that's, that's like the law of the land. They're entitled to use force. They can slam your head down on the ground if that is proportional to something that they perceive that they uh, have to do. Uh, and so I think that we're, w- w- what's comical to me a little bit is that we're sort of saying, okay, you guys went too far, right? Not that police should be minimizing force, but we're just saying you, you, you maximize it too much. Um, and we're not trying to move that line. We're not trying to say, hey, why do we even have a narcotics uh, a unit in, the, in all these towns? I mean, if we got rid of the war on drugs, 
What happens to those jobs? Where do these people go? What are they trained to do? They're not trained to do anything else, but 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 sort of drive around in, in plain clothes and unmarked cars and kind of um, you know uh, allegedly harass people. So so I think that sort of uh, I have a hard time sort of uh, unpacking uh, something like this when the issue is not that they used force at all because they're allowed to. It's that they, that they used too much force by some standard. And so I think this is a good time to sort of ask where's the where should the line be? What you know, how do we move that line in the right direction? Why shouldn't the goal be to have sort of a, a forceless policing? Um, you know, isn't that possible? Has anyone ever asked that question? Is that even possible? So of course. Uh, I mean, dude, other countries are doing it actively. How many people do the police in England kill per year? <laughs> You guys know it's like minimal because they can't use it's generally like zero. Power, right? It's literally effing zero in in Germany, like zero to one. This is our problem in this country. And we the fact that we have no outside vision to how the rest of the world operates here. This is not this is literally to a protect and serve issue. Like, what does that mean to you? To me, that means protect that person's life, even if they're trying to harm you. You, you do not actively try to harm, murder, kill, you know, kick, do whatever, all these things. You try to disarm, disengage, and get them to a safe spot so they can be put on trial if they've but, done something wrong. But tying it back to drugs, because I, I, I think there's two points I, I wanted to just touch on. One is, again, this is what Luke said, the context. These are narcotics officers who are trying to build a case, either find ca uh, cases of possession or dealing, or build a case for for uh, possession or dealing, right? So uh, at the moment that the the in interaction starts, there's actually not really an element of danger other than inherent danger, right? There's no, there's not a, a murder that just took place. There's not a weapons call. Um, you know, if there's a if there's a murder, other types of officers get called, right? If someone sees a weapon, other types of officers get call, uh, called. So the fact that force is being injected into these encounters is itself a very questionable thing because it starts off as a nonviolent offense, right? Um, and I think one uh, sleight of hand that the police have succeeded is convincing us that drugs are inherently violent, right? When you think of a drug dealer, you think of a violent person. Right. You don't think of the guy in the suit who works for Purdue Pharma. Um, you don't think of the, 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 the clean cut college kid who's selling marijuana or or or, or uh, something harder uh, out of the dorm room. You think of somebody who has you know, a weapon and is violent. And that that mind trick has succeeded in allowing us to uh, authorize, I think, a, a lot of force that's uh, totally unnecessary being used. So, so I think that's one, too. Going back to the interrogation of the minor, the fact that police would threaten to plant drugs raises my eyebrows above my head because I don't think that that should ever happen. And I'm no. very concerned that police have access to drugs and therefore have the ability to plant drugs. So the fact that they're even thinking about planting drugs or wanting to convince you that they could makes me wonder, have we investigated whether they do plant drugs? And that's a very scary thing because that's one of the only crimes that all it takes is somebody to leave something somewhere and you are now officially guilty, right? Yeah. It's hard to frame someone for murder. It's hard to frame someone for arson, but it's very easy to take a, a crack rock from one arrest and throw it at the feet of somebody else and say, well, it looks like I get to arrest you too. So I, I wonder if there's any investigation done of planting evidence, which I, well, I, mean, I know happens, but it doesn't seem to be documented. I mean, that's exactly why the Boston 
police department uh, police unions fighting so hard against uh, having to wear body cams, right? Like if, if mm-hmm. they had to wear body cams all the time, then they couldn't engage in this activity and their jobs would be a lot harder because they couldn't just frame people. <laughs> and we, and we know that that statement and we know that, detective, <laughs> <thought> that. <laughs> we know that detective Burnham would bring envelopes or bags of drugs to the Amherst lab, apparently unsealed. Right. I think that's not, uh, that's been established. So you yeah. have this, we'll get to this, Burnham later. Yeah. We'll get to Burnham later, but you have this window, very generous window where uh, suddenly four crack rocks can become three. Um, and my recollection was Burnham didn't want you to count the rocks, right? He just wanted you to count the bags that were unsealed. So there's uh, my concern is there's a, a drug slush fund that can be used to uh, procure uh, uh, unlimited numbers of future convictions. And, and I don't know if anyone has even attempted to investigate that. Certainly I know DOJ didn't, but I wonder if anyone anywhere in the country has. There's also similar issues. Uh, like I remember that I think the Framingham police department, there just so happened to be like an extra key to the evidence room sitting around so that yeah. people could have easy access. Yeah. If they we'll didn't get, really want to we'll get there too. We'll get, yeah. we'll get there. We're, we're going to do something on no that. Jumping we'll ahead. Get, yeah. Luke, Luke uh, did you have any thoughts? No, I mean, I, I think, you know, you you bring up the issue of, of planting drugs and, and it just reminded me of like, uh, you know, the the powerful like propaganda, pro-cop propaganda that has just inundated our, our culture to a point that um, I, I realized, I don't know if any of you saw Mayor of Easttown, the Kate Winslet uh series on HBO not too long ago. She plays a cop who, who does that very thing. And as she was doing it, me doing what I do professionally, I'm all in on Kate Winslet's side. I always cheer for the cops in these procedurals because I think that's just how I've been conditioned. And there are so many of them these that I, I think it's it's almost impossible to, to really realize how much exposure we are to a kind of pro-cop agenda that infiltrates all of us and in ways that, um, you know, like systemic systemic racism produces individual implicit unconscious bias. And I think it, 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 it works the other way too, that we've all just been, you know, from there on up uh, have been fed this ideology around narcotics and the necessity of the war on drugs and the inherent violence of them. And 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 the the you know the the brave police officers who are taking on this intractable problem that it, it becomes really really challenging to look at just how ugly and corrupt the whole endeavor is. That's a great way of putting it. And the I mean you know I'm a child of the '80s. Um, this is your brain on drugs. Like the like the propaganda that I saw in between the cartoons that I watched was there, was ever present. It was, you know, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latin. Like everyone was, they, they all had a ad that drugs are bad. And if you do them, you're a loser. Like literally, remember McGruff, the crime dog? <laughs> you, he sang a song called Users Are Losers. If, if you remember that, I'll, I'll play that at some point on here. I'll get the clip of it uh, off of YouTube. But like literally... There is a cartoon dog, government-sponsored cartoon dog calling drug addicts losers. Um, and this, this kind of propaganda, to Luke's point, is everywhere. 
you know, it, cop shows are everywhere. And, you know, how many NCIS, how many Law and Order, how many, like, all of these shows, movies, everything, it's cops good, everyone else, everyone against cops, bad, or everyone who cops accuses of doing something wrong are bad. And that has permeated into this case, into especially the Dukin drug lab case. And this case as well, people don't want to hear it. What strikes me is, I mean, I defy anyone to find me a show where internal affairs are the good guys. I mean, that's what's amazing, right? The internal yeah. affairs are universally condemned as the bad guy. And if you took out internal affairs out of these major police departments, I mean, what kind of world would we be living in? I'm not saying they work particularly well, but imagine BPD or Springfield PD without internal affairs departments. What would we be dealing with? Right. I, I mean, one of the things uh, that uh, this DOJ report really sh shined a light on was the way in which having an ineffective, like set up to fail internal affairs department um, really fosters this kind of egregious misconduct. Springfield for many years uh, had this system in place where if a citizen complained about a, a, a police officer's use of force, uh, they'd take a statement, they'd go to the officer, the officer would say, yeah, actually everything I did was in my own self-defense and totally appropriate. And then it would get referred to this community hearing board and their marching orders were, if there's a conflict in the evidence, don't hold a hearing and try to find out who's telling the truth. You can at that point decide that there is insufficient evidence to, for a finding and they would just screen everything out. So by <laughs> the way the whole system was set up, the only way you could be found responsible was either you had conclusive video evidence or a police officer admitted to violating a citizen's rights. And so you'd have officers who would rack up, you know, dozen, two dozen of these complaints, and they would all be kind of screened out. And I think that created this sense of impunity on the part of police officers feeling like, you know, they can cross these lines and not have to worry that they're going to be any kind of professional uh, ramifications. And if it does turn out that the, uh, you know, the person gets acquitted of the charge, and they do get sued, they're going to have a police union that's backing them, they're going to have they're going to be indemnified and they're going to be able to rely on qualified immunity. All of these structural systemic um, barriers that are put in place to prevent uh, police accountability ultimately, I think, create on the part of police officers this attitude that they're they're bulletproof. They can do whatever they want. They are a law unto themselves. And they're enabled to think that way, like you're saying, like it's literally baked into the system and process. Thank you for listening to The Rig Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe so that you can get the latest episodes right when they come out.